Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. There is a tune. There is a tune that you will hear in today's message. And I want to say from the outset, blessed are those who can catch the tune. Look down at your Bibles. Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier. They were, carried, they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to ask to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messengers ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang the dirge and you did not cry. 
For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man, speaking of himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. This passage uh, before us today is all about this question. Who does Jesus think that he is, and who do you think that he is? Who does Jesus think that he is, and who do you think that he is? And I would like to propose that the way that you answer that question will inform the way you live and what you expect in this life. And what you expect in this life, dare I say, you will see. See, the whole passage from the raising of the dead boy in the beginning to the cryptic little metaphor at the end hinges on this question from John the Baptist. Flip back in your Bibles to verse 19. What's his question? He sends the the, the messengers to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, isn't that kind of, it's kind of ironic, you know, because Jesus has just raised this guy from the dead and you would think that John would be like, oh, that's Messiah material, right? But he has this question, are, are, are you, you don't look like I thought you would look. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, why would he ask that? Well, John knew who he was. John was actually very secure in the role that he was to play uh, here on earth. And we actually get a little bit of insight into his role on earth in a scene early in the career of Jesus in John chapter 1. This is in John 1. The next day, John, this is the same John, saw Jesus coming toward him. He's out there, remember, he's baptizing people. Saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me. A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Here's John speaking. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Not only does John know what his role is, he's this forerunner, he's to come before the Messiah. We'll get into what that means, but he's, he's to come before the Messiah and to kind of create a level path, a, a highway, if you will, a clear view for people to see who the Messiah is. But he's confident in his role as well. He's confident in Jesus's role as well. Now, fast forward a few years in, into Jesus' ministry, and John's struggling with Jesus at this point that we pick up the story in Luke 7. You don't look the way that I thought you would look. Are you really the Messiah? What does that word Messiah mean? Well, the Jewish people knew, and their prophets spoke to what every honest person knows. See, every honest person knows that they need saving. Every person, if they really get honest with themselves, they know I'm not okay on my own. I need saving from sin, from living contrary to the design of God. That's the real problem that all of humanity needs solved. And so all throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are these prophets who are speaking of this healer, this son of man who will come and he will be what Adam and Eve weren't. He's gonna crush the serpent, right? He's going to uh, release healing. This healing's gonna be like fresh water that touches salty water and it doesn't get contaminated with salty water, but it turns the salty water fresh. It's what he's doing with leprosy, by the way, isn't it? He's touching lepers. He's not getting leprosy. They're getting what he has, not what they, he's not getting what they have. 
So all of the prophets are speaking of this Mashiach, this Messiah, this figure who will come and will put, begin to put the world to rights. And so how does Jesus answer when he's asked, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? You know, you can imagine John thinking, you know, I, I know things got a bit carried away a few years ago out there with all the baptizing in the Jordan and the prophetic energy was a little strong, I admit. Uh, are you really the one? How does Jesus answer? He simply shows his fruit. Verse 22, look down at your Bible. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. <laughs> what you have seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account me. Now, here's what's kind of fascinating. I think many modern people, there's kind of a strain within uh, certainly, you know, our current age uh, way of thinking about Jesus that would say, see, Jesus never claimed to be God. He says things like, he's the son of man. Don't you know? He's a man. He's just a man. He's the son of man. You're like, oh, you have, okay. You haven't read Daniel. Okay. Jesus never claimed to be God, and this is just another example. He's not actually claiming to be God. He's just saying that he's, you know, doing a bunch of good things and, you know, to people around him or something like that. But what a misreading. What a misreading. Jesus isn't just giving his testimony or his account. Jesus is quoting here. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah was prophesying about the sort of things the coming Messiah would do, here's what Isaiah said. The ears... Oh yeah, okay, it does start with and, huh? And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then will, you know, I should have, I'm just gonna read it because I think I totally just messed this up. Hang on a second. <laughs> Bear with me, let me get there. Sorry, Emily. <laughs> For those of you who have been here a while, you know Emily is, I just should run my slides by, yeah, I need to, the seven Ps are coming to mind. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 35, yeah, here, this is, this is just a prophecy about what will happen. The glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God will come and strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then, <laughs> this is good, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. He's quoting. Or how about this one? This is, I think I got this one right. Yeah, here we go. Uh, this is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Speaking of, the, this is like in the first person uh, Messiah talk right here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Where have we heard that before? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He's saying, what is Jesus saying when he says this? The deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the dead are rising. He's saying, I'm the guy the prophets have spoken about. I'm the Messiah. 
They were talking about me. All the hope of Israel, that's me. And this is what I do. I heal. I cause seeing and hearing. I preach the good news about the accessibility of God's kingdom to the poor. Now, I think this is a great moment for us to just simply recognize what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his kingdom. Maybe you've heard that language before, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Here's just a simple, in a simple definition right here. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he is talking about an invisible rule and reign of God in people that produces tangible heavenly results through them in our world today. So, you know, you're like, the kingdom of God, like, is, you know, we have kingdoms here on earth, but is it a physical kingdom? Are we supposed to, you know, take over the political system and establish the kingdom of God? No, no, no. The kingdom of God is, Jesus says things like this, it's within you. Or the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or the kingdom of God is at hand. What he's saying is that for those who submit themselves to the rule of King Jesus, there will be tangible, a tangible effect around them of kingdom stuff. I think many people have read about Jesus and they've they've read stories like this and they've thought, wow, that's amazing. I wish I had lived when Jesus was around. That would have been so cool. And that is the exact wrong way to read this. See, here's my question to you this morning. How did Jesus do what he did when he's talking about this? When he's talking about the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, how did he do that? Like, what I'm getting at is either Jesus is an example for us to follow today, or he isn't. Many have this theological dichotomy in their minds about Jesus, where they say, Jesus is the Savior. He's a Savior, and so he is inaugurating uh, heaven now, and and he's saving us from sin, and we're going to be with him forever in eternity. And other people say, no, 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 that, that... if he's a savior, then he might make moral demands. He's not, just, he's not a savior, he's a teacher. Jesus is a good teacher, and he taught, you know, kind things like love your neighbor and stuff like that. Jesus is both. But what if he's also an example? Both savior and teacher, but what if he's also example? Let me ask you this question. You guys need to clock in for a second. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus do what he did because he was God? Or did Jesus do what he did because he had the Holy Spirit? You're like, huh. (laughs) Some of you are like, careful, Alex. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I'm not the only one to have ever asked this question. In fact, the Pharisees asked this question in Matthew chapter 12. Here's what the Pharisees asked. They said this. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges, but... If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a subtle answer, isn't it? Jesus isn't driving out demons or doing the miraculous by the prince of demons, right? The house divided won't stand, duh. But then he hints at how, how he's driving out demons. And it is right there in the text. We learn that it is by the Spirit of God that he drives out demons. 
by the Spirit of God that he performs the miraculous. Now, now here's the point. If Jesus had, if this had read, it is by me being God that I drive out demons, all of us would say, that's awesome. Jesus is God. That makes a lot of sense. But the problem is this, is that Jesus gives to his disciples the very tool he uses to do the miraculous. And so we're stuck with a problem. Do we believe him or do we not? See, Jesus says things like this. Those who believe in me will do the works that I've been doing. What are the works? The deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the dead are rising. And there's a strain within the Christian church today that says, be careful. Don't get your hopes up. Look, I'm not the one who's saying to us as a church, we should get our hopes up. We should, do, we should see crazy things. I'm not the one who said that. Jesus, every single disciple, has been, given the, has been breathed on by God, given the Holy Spirit, given the very tool that Jesus used to bring about kingdom fruit. And so I don't have an excuse. I can't not pray for healing. It's not, it's not, I, I'm not allowed. He gave me the tool. He expects me to use the tool. Do you see what this means? If Jesus did the Isaiah stuff, the kingdom stuff, some other way, being God, then we would have no hope of participation. But if he did it through the very thing that he gave to us, he is setting an example for us to follow, that we can follow. What this means is that the life of Jesus didn't just save you, and he doesn't just teach you. If He does both of those things, but he empowers you now to see his will, his heavenly kingdom, come to our space to be established even now. He set a standard for what is possible through his life for disciples who are connected to the Father. Do you believe that? Sometimes I don't believe that, I'll be honest. But we come together, we read the scriptures, we, have our, we, we repent in our minds and we say, you've, you've set the standard, you've set the example, you've given me the Holy Spirit. And this is where I want to camp a little bit today. See, this gets, this concept, this idea gets at the vision of this church. I felt like, you know, we're about to enter into our vision series in September. We do it every year. It's, it's vitally important. But um, I, I just felt a need today to kind of tell some old stories and to speak to why this church exists and what our vision is. So I'm going to do that a little bit because wrapped up in the description of the stuff that happens in the kingdom, wrapped up in what Jesus is saying here, the, the, the proof that he's the Messiah, the marching orders that he's given us, that's where we find our vision as a church, the Saints Hill vision. You know, one of the most common questions, and uh, sometimes it's with a, a tad bit of scorn that I get, is why on earth did you plant a church in Newburgh? Of all places, why did you come to the most churched town and plant a church here? I have a buddy from Kansas. I've got a lot of churches in Kansas. He told me the other day, he's like, yeah, the first time I drove through Newburgh, I thought, this must be one of the most churched towns in all of America. And he's from Kansas. <laughs> for a while, Newburgh was, I, think, I don't think it is anymore, but it was the, had the most churches per capita. Uh, why, why on earth? I still get weird looks when I tell people I planted a church in, in Newburgh. They're like, huh. And, and um, I, I just know now that um, I've just settled it in my heart that I will be misunderstood because the founding of this church can't be separated from the call and prophetic destiny of this church. 
I remember I met with this pastor in town um, when, we, when we were thinking about planting here, and we had really, my wife had a really strong word that this was where we were supposed to plant the church, and it, and it was confirmed, and we really felt strongly this is where we were supposed to go. And I sat down with this pastor, and he just looks across his desk at me, and he goes, what gives you the right to think you can come plant a church here? And I was a little ornery at the time. I've, I've matured four years later. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I just don't, I'm not listening to your wisdom, I'm listening to his. And he was like, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. But, but, but that really is what happened. I remember I came back from, uh, I was a youth pastor at the time, I came back from, from uh, youth night, and we knew, we just knew the Lord had put a, a church plant on our heart. We knew it, we didn't know where. We, we were entertaining all the places that we never wanted to live. Berkeley, New York, Oakland. It was like, those are all the places I don't want to go, Lord, but if that's really where you want us to go, we'll go. Um, and then Emily, she said to me, she goes, what, if that, what about Newburgh? <laughs> Boom. Right there, the Lord just began to download. I remember I stayed up all night. Just, I had just these dreams of like, and then this could happen, and we could have a kid. Maybe, maybe Fox students would come. That'd be so cool. I went to George Fox, and, and you know, I just had all this vision. I even dreamed about meeting in this space that we're in right now. I just thought, oh, that'd be so cool. And so much of what Jake and myself and Andoni dreamed about in the beginning, we have seen happen. It was just wonderful. The next day, we were going down to visit uh, Jake and Becky in Reading. They were living in Reading at the time. We get on the plane, and the, the whole time I'm on the plane, I'm just getting a download from the Lord, just images about what he intends to do in Newburgh. So the first image I ever got for what I, I feel like the Lord wanted to do here in this town, um, the prophetic destiny, I, I hope, of this church, is I saw the hills, if you were to just walk out those doors and look over there, you'd see the hills. And I saw, uh, kind of from a bird's eye view, this incredible, uh, beautiful, um, very nicely dyed tapestry that was laid over the hills. And I felt the Lord say, um, I am exchanging a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness through this, this church. And, I, and I, I, that, that meant so much to me because I grew up in Sherwood. I grew up around this town. This town um, had traditionally been kind of economically depressed and, and not a, a, a great place of abundance. M much has changed. For those of you who have been around, you know, longer than 10 years, a lot has changed. And I just thought, oh, wouldn't that be just so amazing of the Lord to just take this place? I remember uh, the next thing that came to my mind was that phrase that Jesus says, you know, can anything, or that is said in the Gospels, can anything good come out of Galilee? And I thought, can anything good come out of Newburgh? You know, it's like this tiny, small town, and, and what, what could God really do with it? And the Lord, I'm like, that's just like the Lord, isn't it? That's just like the Lord to take an impossible thing and to, and to do the possible with it. And it just grabbed me. And so from that moment, you know, that, that comes the, the exchanging of a garment of praise. We just read it. For the spirit of despair that comes from Isaiah 61, from that point, Isaiah 61 has been sort of a north star and a, and a direction for vision for this church. And so here's what I'm saying. For those of you who call this place home, Jesus' mission is our mission. When you read about what Jesus is doing here, this Isaiah stuff, this kingdom stuff, that's our mission these are our marching orders. What Saints Hill exists to do is tied to how Jesus described the kingdom, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the good news of God's nearness told to the poor. This is what Saints Hill has existed to do from the beginning. And in a word, if I could, I believe that it's revival. 
I don't use that term lightly or flippantly. I really, I use it in, in the sense of revive, to, to bring back to life. Here's how I define revival. Revival is people coming back to the life they were designed to live. It's Eden stuff. It's coming back. It's, it's a town, a whole town, waking up to the reality of the presence of God. I, I, we're in, in the middle of worship. What a wonderful time of worship. I'm just thinking, what could you do with a surrendered people in this town? What could you do with a people who give a collective? I just felt it in worship, a collective yes to the Lord. A collective, you, 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 you have my heart. I'm not gonna look at what people who, who have more than me and I'm not gonna be in greed. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be in, in, in doubt of your goodness. I'm, like what Justin is talking about, I'm gonna celebrate your blessing wherever I see it. Do you know what that would do to a town? Revival is so powerful because it's, it's, I just feel like I was designed for it. I was made to exist in revival because it's the presence of God doing the heavy lifting. It, it, you know, I, I, longed, I long to see a move of God that can't be traced to a technique. That isn't traced to a, a, a practice or to, a, to, a, a, to human involvement in a sense. You know, sometimes we, we get together and there's a reason why things are stripped down here. We could do things, you know, there's still some of you that like, we still don't have drums. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I have these two competing desires in my heart. On the one side, I want to see heaven come more than anything. I want to see the things of the kingdom more than anything. And on the other hand, my other desire is this, I hate hype. I hate it. I hate um, over-emotionalism, but I want to be open to the moving of the Spirit. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want that to affect my faith for what God can do. So it's this stewarding that I think that our church is invited into, this revival stewarding of just looking for where he's bringing things back to life. He's taking broken things and he's fixing them. He's taking things that were stolen and he's restoring them. He's taking things that have been destroyed and he's rebuilding them. I long to see, I know many of you do too, and it happens by this, it happens by hosting the presence of God. It is all about the, the presence of God amongst us. It isn't about a program that we're gonna come up with, and if we come up with the right program, revival's coming. Sometimes the Lord invites, by, by listening to his presence, he invites you to start something new, and he uses it. I love that, that's happened many, many times. But the priority is the presence of God. The priority is, what are you doing? What are you saying? Where are you going? What would you have us do here? The only way to see this Isaiah stuff, this kingdom stuff, is to dance to God's tune. And so to end, I think this passage is telling us how to not be the children in the marketplace. Look back at your Bibles, verse 31. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. This is the most cryptic part of this text, but I think here's what's happening. Jesus is imagining, and he's inviting us to imagine the same, a disagreement uh, between children in a marketplace. 
And the children in the marketplace are playing two different tunes. They're playing a tune on the pipe. Uh, a wedding tune. They're playing a wedding song. And they're saying, you should dance. We're playing a wedding song. And there's other children who are playing a funeral song, a dirge. And they're saying, you should mourn because of the song that we're playing. And Jesus relates this imagined scene to himself and John. John was too austere, too much like a funeral. People rejected him. Jesus was too joyful, too much like a wedding. People rejected him. And here's the point. Jesus won't dance to your tune. See, every group of believers contend in one of two directions, overly somber, perhaps influenced too greatly by the pain of this life. They lose faith. They reject anything that looks too hopeful. There's another group of believers that can be overly optimistic, ignoring the pain of this life, never mourning when they should. And when either happens, when either becomes the tune that we sing, we're set up to miss Jesus. Because like the kids in the marketplace, we want him to dance to our tune, to do what we think he should do, to be in the mood that we're, that we're in. But what he is saying is that he has a tune, a kingdom tune. And do you know what it sounds like? The deaf hearing, the blind seeing, the lame walking, resurrection. Can you hear it? See, I don't want to play the funeral song because my faith has been syncretized too greatly with the pain of this world. Too informed. And I don't want to only play the wedding song when God might want me to pause and think about mortality and eternity. And the only way that we do that, the only way that we, we ride that, that narrow road, that thin balance, is by sensing what the Holy Spirit is doing to catch the tune of heaven. I had a, a very interesting experience on Friday, and it's just, the, it's just the Lord, because it happened to be this week with this um, passage. But I, I, I went to a wedding and a funeral in the same day. And both the wedding and the funeral began sort of uncharacteristically with worship by singing. And something very special happened in both situations. See, you can mourn, you can be at a, at a funeral and you can mourn and it can lead to a loss of trust in God. I've done that. It's almost a spiral. You just are like, you know, the pain is so great. It's so real. It's more real, it's more real than God in this moment. And it leads to a loss of trust. But at this funeral... <laughs> When God's presence was the primary concern, what's your tune? Before we even start a funeral, what's your tune, Holy Spirit? It was so amazing. I was able to mourn, but it led me to comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's another kind of mourning. And you can have a wedding. You can go to a wedding, a time of joy that leads to debauchery, where God is, is forgotten. I've been to a wedding like that. <laughs> but at this wedding, God's presence was the primary concern. And so you could rejoice. You could rejoice in, in this beautiful mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church, but I'm also talking about this marriage right here. You could rejoice in this beautiful mystery because the presence of the real joy giver was there. 
both times were so powerful because in both times, the, the heart of the, of the gatherings were, we'll dance to your tune in every season. And that is where, I'm telling you guys, that is where revival begins. Things begin to be revived, and that is where revival is sustained. That is the unity of the Spirit. And I, I have experienced that kind of unity of the Spirit where you just go, hey, this is going on in our community, and rather than reacting, what do you think we should do? What do you think we, we pause. Let's listen. There is such unity of the Spirit that comes from that, and I have felt that unity here in this church to such a profound degree. That resolve, that commitment to catch his tune. There was a pastor who was asked um, one time why God hadn't moved in a particular city uh, here on the West Coast. It was, it's a big city. I won't mention the name of it, but big city. And there was this sense that God had never really done a move there. There wasn't any kind of historical record of a move of God in that city. And this very famous pastor, when he was asked this question, why is that? He responded, nobody's ever loved that city. Nobody's ever really loved it. You know, when we, uh, when we first uh, felt like we were supposed to plant this church, um, I, I did love Newburgh. I went to Fox. I, I loved it. I don't love it like I love it now, but I did love it. Um, but I met a, a couple who loved it more than anybody I've ever known. Uh, love it. Uh, I met Mike and Barbie over here. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I just wanted to take the time to honor you because Mike and Barbie were the first people from Newburgh I ever met uh, before we planted. And uh, I, do you remember that first time we got, we got burritos at a restaurant that doesn't exist? The pandemic. Sad. Uh, and we sat down, and I remember Mike explained to me, you know, I, I run an auto shop in town. He doesn't anymore. Retired. Nice. Um, he says, I run this auto shop in town, and, and we do fix cars, but most of my time is spent on stewarding the prophetic words about Newburgh. And I was like, really? He's like, I found my people. And he had a whole map in his office of all of the prophetic words that he'd received about, you know, what God's intent is for this town, what God wants to see here, and, and what this person had an impression, and they had this image, and this person had a word, and this person had a verse about what he intends to do here, and he had mapped it all out because he loves this town, because Mike and Barbie love this town. And you know, for a long time, and we've had conversation, for a long time, they, they had these words, and I mean years, tens of years, they had these words and they didn't see them come to fruition. They were not seeing all of them come to fruition. I'm sure there's so many that we've yet to see, I hope, can't wait, um, that, have yet, that hadn't come to fruition. And they were there faithfully stewarding singing his song, catching the tune of heaven. What do you want to do here, Lord? What do you intend to do here? And you know, it was so amazing. When we sat down and we started talking, I said, you know, I have a word actually for Newburgh. It's this tapestry word about it going over the hills. They're like, we have the same one. <laughs> I was like, you do? And one by one, we had so many of the same things that I felt God had spoken to, to Jacob and to Andoni and myself. He was saying to people already here, <laughs> They even had, just the other day, we were at the same wedding, and we were reminiscing, like, Barbie even said, can anything good come from Newburgh? I'm like, you guys had that one too? I'm like, I had that one. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. But I'm, I just want to say this over, over us as a church. I see a new generation of Mike and Barbies, a new generation of people who will learn from their love for this town, who will learn from their stewardship of a place, who won't be looking 
If there's, is there a better life somewhere else? Is there a, a, a better, a cooler thing happening over here, over there? Who just say, you know, what have, what's your tune, not my tune? What's your tune? What have you promised to do here, Lord? That's what I want to see happen. That's what I'm going to speak. That's what's gonna, what I'm going to use to inform my faith. A people who have so caught the tune of heaven that their yieldedness to the Holy Spirit produces Isaiah stuff. Kingdom stuff right here in this time. I feel like each time one of you comes to me or shares with one another a prophetic inkling about our place, about this space, it's like another log on the Holy Spirit fire of unity of vision. So I want to add just one log today to end. I um, spoke at a a conference back in June in a little youth conference uh, in Texas. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to leave a place to get insight about the place. I just love, it always happens to me. Whenever I travel, I, I, get, a, uh, I, I get vision for, for Newburgh. And so I, I, I was there, um, and I got, I got an image. An image came to my mind that, actually, I think you guys have had before, but I didn't realize it until later, of Newburgh is almost, it's a bowl. Actually, the way that it's shaped, it's a valley, but we have these hills on all, yeah. Is this one of yours, Mike, too? Okay, all right. So <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's this bowl, and that God was filling it with wine, that was going to overflow over the top of the ridge and into other towns and other places. You know, for me, what it meant, I love that imagery, obviously wine and the representing of the Holy Spirit and this new wine that God has for us to drink. Um, he's doing it here. He's pouring himself out. It's just so wonderful. But, but this time, I, I felt a different kind of idea come along with it, and it was this that there is a renewing sense of responsibility for our town that we are to take up. A responsibility to dream again for this place. You know, we're four years into planting this church. A lot of the things that we dreamed, that we hoped for, we've actually seen a lot of those things happen. It's time to dream again. It's time for you. You're like, little old me? Yes, little old you. It's time for you to dream again, to come talk to us, to, to inform the people around you, to say, this is the tune I believe he's, he's playing. This is the song I believe he's singing. This is the wine he's pouring out to catch his tune, his intentions, and to make sure that as a, as a church, our faith and expectations are informed by his song. So I really want you to ask yourself, what is possible here with a surrendered people? Can you imagine it? What is possible here for a people who are fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit? I want you to even think this, maybe even close your eyes and think this. I want you to ask God, let's just do this, let's practice this right now. I want you to ask God, what will my role be in Newburgh in my lifetime? Maybe it's for a short time. Maybe it's a lifetime. What's my role here? Go ahead and ask him that. For, I, I just think for some of you, it's to raise a generation of Christ followers, people who are, I love this, there's this song that says laid down lovers. You're to raise laid down lovers of the Lord. For some of you, he's, giving, he's reiterating something that he's told you before. Or maybe it's something totally new. And I want to I specifically say to the person right now who is thinking, I can't participate in this because you don't know what I've done. I want to say this to you. 
The blood of Jesus has covered you. There is a banner over your whole life that says righteous son or daughter, and you are a part of this as well. God will use you. What's our role, Lord? Look, I believe that we're witnessing a revival, a beginning of a revival that will spill over the hills into this state and into the rest of our country. I really do. So let us make sure that we're dancing to his tune. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.